disciples are made through the proclamation of the gospel and the maturing of disciples is through teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded. Welcome to the Sound Words Podcast, where it's our goal to help Christians love and live out God's Word. And don't forget to subscribe if you're watching on YouTube, uh, so you can be notified about future episodes as they come. I'm Pastor Aaron Nicholson. I'm with Pastor Jesse Randolph. And today we have the Senior Pastor of Inner City Baptist Church and President of Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, Dr. David Doran. Thank you for joining us on the Sound Words Podcast today, Dr. Doran. Well, thank you for the opportunity to be here. We're so glad to have you. Uh, Dr. Doran has written a book called For the Sake of His Name many years ago, published first in 2002, I understand. Um, This is a book about making disciples and carrying the gospel to all the nations. And I really, I told you before we hit record, I appreciate your work, Dr. Doran. It helped me a lot as a believer to understand evangelism and discipleship. And so this is a topic we want to ask you about today. Um, Thank you for being willing to share your insights. Uh, Love to do so. Great. Well, Dr. Doran, uh, we're, we're excited to have you on, and we know this book and, and this topic has to do with the Great Commission, Christ's command to his followers to carry out what we know from Matthew 28 is the Great Commission. Could you just start us off by explaining what is the Great Commission and why do all Christians need to know what it is as we seek to carry it out? Right. So uh, the the label Great Commission obviously is one of our making because it doesn't actually say it that way in the text, but I think historically it's because the text in Matthew is sort of the one that has a little bit of broader outline of the summary of it. So it sort of becomes the Great Commission text. But in the Gospels, there's some form of commissioning by Jesus. Clearly at the beginning of Acts, there's a commissioning by Jesus for his disciples to to do the work that he's entrusted to them in between his first and second coming. And so it's a way for us to describe our responsibility to the mission of Jesus Christ until he returns. Like at the end of Matthew, it says, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So what he's charging us to do is something that should last until he returns. So we still have a responsibility to be a, a part of that mission of making and maturing disciples and forming them into congregations of worshipers that that obey the commands of Jesus. Yeah, praise God. What a task. And praise God, it doesn't rely all on us. It doesn't rely on us. It's driven by God and, and, and through His Spirit. Uh, there are methods, though, that I think you know God uh, allows us to use, wants us to use. Can you speak to the methods of how we ought to carry out the Great Commission and maybe talk about some methods we should avoid? I would say the the core or key to it is the proclamation of the gospel. If you look at uh, Matthew, so the Great Commission is in 28, in 26 and 24, he talks about the gospel being preached into the whole world. Uh, at the end of each of the other gospels, there's reference to the preaching, for instance, in Luke 24. He says, uh, repentance for the forgiveness of sins shall be proclaimed in my name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. Acts 1.8, your witnesses. And then if you go through Acts, they scattered about preaching the Lord Jesus. They scattered up preaching the word. They were solemnly testifying to that Jesus is the Christ from the scriptures. The word spread, the word spread, the word spread. So 
they were fulfilling the Great Commission through the proclamation of the gospel. And even though, uh, so over the last 50 years, there's been a big push um, since Luzon in 74 to try to talk about fulfilling the Great Commission as both words and works. And it originally was sort of anchored in John 17, 18, as you sent me, so I'm sending them. And in 2021, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Um, I think what's, I mean, there's lots of mistakes, I think, in that. But but the seems to me the most obvious one is that's 1718. In 1720, Jesus says, I'm not praying for them only, but for those who will believe on me through their word. So what Jesus was sending them to do is the same thing he did, which he mentions earlier in the chapter is, I have given them your words and they have believed on me. So Jesus's mission was proclamational as well. And then he tells his disciples, now you go and preach repentance for the forgiveness in my name. You preach the good news. You proclaim this. So what I'd say, that has to be, that has to be the core, the engine, right? So if we're talking the method of making and maturing disciples, uh, it is disciples are made through the proclamation of the gospel and the maturing of disciples is through teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded. So the the centrality has to be the ministry of the word. Hmm. So methods that would be wrong, <laughs> I guess we'd have we'd have to have a long, long podcast for me to <laughs> list them all. So I suppose what I'd say is anything that diminishes uh, the core task of preaching, proclamation, uh, anything that that tinkers with the message. Uh, so if I just use First Corinthians, uh, anybody that wants to sort of put the the foolishness of the message preached to the side in order to have something more appealing to the lost, right, the natural man. So, so if you minimize the cross of Christ as the centerpiece, because Paul says there, I determined to preach Christ and Him crucified in two two. So anything that minimizes uh, the content of the gospel as being centered on Jesus Christ and his cross work, I think would be a mistake methodologically, strategically. I think anything that tries to uh, remove that offense to make the gospel, if I could use language that sometimes happens, make it more plausible, Right, find ways to build bridges to the the lost person that makes a connection in some way other than God and his message for us. Hmm. Right. I think I would be pretty <laughs> convinced that when you see Paul preach in various contexts, his starting point and contact point is God. And then he moves from there towards sinners and the message of redemption. So if he's in the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia, he starts with the covenant God of Israel and how they've offended him and what God has done to fulfill his promises to them, right? So that sermon in Acts 13 goes from, you know, God who made all these promises to raise up from the seed of David, a servant has sent him. He was crucified, 
he offers to you all the things that that you couldn't find in Moses, right? He 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 offers forgiveness of sins. Acts 17, he's in a pagan context and he still starts with God. Yeah. He says, You're worshiping in ignorance, but you ought to know that the God who made everything is not like this. And that God is commanding all people in every place to repent, and he's appointed a day by which you'll judge them, furnish proof in having raised Jesus from the dead. Right. So he starts with the point of contact. Um, in the you know, the Latin way to say is the sense of we talk about the sense of divine or deity, right? That there's an innate human awareness that there is a God, Romans 1, and that they're accountable to that God, Romans 2. So our methods ought to work in line with that. And I think a lot of what's happened uh, in contemporary American Christianity is trying to actually find some other workaround by felt needs or appealing to uh, bases that are not grounded in that point. And I think those methodologies end up either denying or severely mangling the content of the gospel because the gospel is being fit to the audience instead of to the giver of the gospel, or those methods are accommodating, either accommodating unbelief or not taking seriously the, the, the depth of unbelief. Because the natural man does not receive the things of God, neither can he know them for their foolishness to him. So thinking that you can come up with plausibility structures that make the gospel more palatable to unbelievers discounts the depth of depravity. So I'd say generally that's what I'd be concerned about is is in what ways are we either minimizing the the foolishness of the message preached, like First Corinthians one, and trying to substitute it with a philosophy. The way I say it, sort of, you know, casually, is I think there's been a philosophy for a long time, but particularly in, since the mid twentieth century, we have to get them to like us before they'll like Jesus. So we're trying to win people to us by accommodating and building all these things that appeal to sinners in ways that match up to their sort of ambitions or dreams, right? Uh, self-fulfillment was dominant through the boomer generation, right? So so uh, how can the gospel help you achieve the American dream, or feel fulfilled, have a good self-esteem, all that? Uh, it seems for the younger generations now, it is how can we show them that the church is an answer to volunteerism and paying things back? Yeah. So we have to find out what they care about. What are the crises and issues of our culture that they care about? Show that we care about those so we can sort of win them over to us and then we can maybe win them to Jesus. And and I think both of those are uh, dangerous for the long haul yeah. because they actually sort of hide the offense of the cross. And that's why I think sometimes they get a lot of people in the front door, but they go right out the back door when they actually find out, you know, what Jesus really <laughs> declares to them about 
about things. That's probably a longer answer than you were looking for, but that's great. No, that's incredibly insightful. I mean, even to think through the connection of fulfillment of the Great Commission to the local church, as you've articulated, to placing God and his character front and center, uh, to the unknown God, you know, in Acts 17. Uh, even that last concept you just developed, you know, you you keep them with what you win them with. So even, yeah, you, you want to make and mature disciples, to borrow your language. And so you want to make sure that you are keeping it front and center, meaning God and his character, uh, man and his sin problem, Christ and the solution, and the call to, to repent and believe in the gospel. And uh, it may offend, it may ruffle feathers, uh, it may not grow your church as fast as you prefer to see it grow, but it's going to surely... Um, bring the message clearly and, and right down the middle to the people who need to hear it. Right. Dr. Doran, um, going back to the, the book for the sake of his name and, and, and the subtitle there is challenging a new generation for world missions. It just raises another question. You'll often hear folks say things like, you know, I, I, I'm ready to go great, fulfill the great commission. Um, I just need to get out to the mission field, the foreign mission field. So I can do that. Can you speak a little bit to that? Maybe that misconception about, fulfilling the Great Commission as something you can only do in the foreign missionary context versus doing it faithfully in your own backyard. Right. So I would start by by pointing out that what I would say is the Great Commission is the responsibility of the Church of Jesus Christ because it includes those things like baptizing them, teaching them. So the way I try and emphasize it is we are to be individually participating in it, but it is it is actually a congregational responsibility. So, so my understanding of the Great Commission needs to be uh, vitally connected to the local assembly. And that means I have a responsibility. It's given to the church. I'm a part of the church. So I have this responsibility as a part of the congregation to be engaged in the Great Commission. No one is excluded from that responsibility if they're part of the assembly. The issue then becomes, if I could use the sort of, you know, the way we sometimes divide it is, are you a goer or are you a sender? Mm -hmm. Or you could, you know, say, are you one of the sent ones or are you one of the sending ones? Right, that, but we're all a part of it. And, and the ongoing work of that commission from Jesus is that we should think of the church not as having a missionary program, but being a missionary entity. I mean, we actually exist to honor God by doing this work he's given to us. So if we're sending somebody to a place where Christ has not been named, that's doing the Great Commission. If the word is echoing out from us into all of the region around us, like like Thessalonica, right? In First Thessalonians, it echoed out into all of Macedonia, Cai. Paul says they were a model church because of that, hmm. right? You're a model church, an example for from you sounded out the word of the Lord. So, so our church is still engaged in the mission of Jesus Christ by seeking to reach the community within which we exist, seeing the gospel spread into the region around us and to the ends of the earth, because that's that's what we're called to do. And so you don't have to go to a foreign field to be participating in the Great Commission. But every church needs to be 
extending the gospel to the places where Christ has not been named. So I wouldn't want to pit them against each other, mm-hmm. right? I wouldn't want to say to a bunch of people, hey, you know, we can just all stay here and do the Great Commission. Somebody has to go. <laughs> someone has to Someone has to take it to places where Christ has not been named. And so it needs to be a both and not an either or kind of thing. When we carry out the Great Commission, there are obstacles. We live in a sin-cursed world. Uh, we ourselves battle the flesh. Can you speak to some of the obstacles that Christians face in the task of carrying out the Great Commission? Right. Um, boy, so, I mean, at the, at the, you know, yesterday was just Reformation Day, right? So mm-hmm. um, the last, you know, the last lines of a mighty fortress is our God probably is a good, let goods and kindred go, mm-hmm. this mortal life also. That's probably the obstacle that we all face for everything in terms of being willing to step out to speak for Christ in a hostile environment, whether that's near or far away. Are we willing to let goods and kindred go in our mortal life also? So are we committed to the mission of Jesus Christ in a way that actually has some effect on how we live? Right, some sacrifice of some element of our life in this world. Uh, we're uh, to use the words of Paul. We use the world, but we're not making full use of it. Hmm. You know, because if we're if we're fully invested in this world, then the credibility of our witness will be damaged. So that's an obstacle. Right, because we we were preaching a message of a of a savior who's coming to establish a kingdom and of life eternally with him, while living like it's actually this world that matters, and that's going to ring hollow. We're preaching a message of of the cost and consequence of sin and the need for forgiveness, while we're joyfully pursuing sin. That's that's like. That's like me, you know, offering you hair care tips or something. You know, that's <laughs> going to sound a little, a little like I lack credibility on that one. So, so I think that you know the way I I've talked. Um, I mean, for evangelism, I think there's three. There's always three important components: the message, the messenger, and the mission field. And in terms of the message, the 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 thing we have to always focus on is the content of it. Right? Do we have the message right, and can we speak it clearly? So if we don't have the content down accurately and have it in our mind so we can speak it clearly, then that's going to be an obstacle to our witness. That's true right where we are. That even gets uh, probably magnified when you cross a culture, and you're going to preach the gospel uh, cross-culturally, do you know the language? Do you understand the cultural context well enough to communicate the gospel with clarity? So you have to learn the language. You have to understand the culture. You have to understand where, in some ways, the gospel confronts the worldview in the culture within which you are you are going, right? So you have to be able to press the gospel into the idolatries of of that worldview in some way, if I could put it that way. Like in Acts 17, you know, Paul is confronting their pagan idolatry. He understood 
what was going on as he walked through the city of Athens and he was confronting it with the gospel. No, there aren't many gods. There's one God and we're all accountable to him. And that God you should know is not like idols, right? You know that yourself and even your poets have recognized that, right? So so he confronts it. So he understands the content of the gospel well enough and and works at clarity that he can communicate it in a way that it's differentiated from what they believe. That's a different problem for, like, I don't know what you, you, your area might not be like ours. Ours is uh, predominantly Catholic and rapidly growing in Islam, hmm. right? So, so presenting the gospel has to stand apart from Catholicism for them to understand it. And and also, we're going to have to confront the difference between biblical Christianity and Islam in order for that to actually be the thing that is clear in calling them to repentance. It's true if you go into an animistic culture, or if you go into an entirely secular culture, or if you go into a Muslim culture. So, so the content's necessary. The messenger, is, the issue is really credibility. And what I mean by credibility is um, all the scriptures would talk about how our lives should reflect Christ and his work in us, uh, that, that, that it's possible for us to live in ways that contradict you know, what we say we believe. Um, and I think also that that can, tr- that can apply across the congregation because there is something about the 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 mutual display of Christ-like love in John 13, which authenticates our discipleship. So a church that's full of division and strife is actually damaging the credibility of their profession of faith. Right. So it's personal and congregational. And so so that's where sometimes people would try to leverage that to the win them to you before you can win them to Christ. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying if you're going to uh, say like Paul, preach about sin, righteous, you know, uh, righteousness, self-control, those kinds of things, or the Spirit's going to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment, then the messenger actually needs to be not of this world and being sanctified by the truth, like John John 17 talks about, and being holy like your Father in heaven is holy. Then the third component is the mission field. And that's contact. Right? So an obstacle to believers in evangelism is if they've lost all contact with lost people. Right? You can know the gospel great, and you can be living a godly life, but if you have never interacted with lost people, it's hard to be a witness. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, uh, I mean, I come from and am in, gladly, a separatist kind of culture Right, we believe in biblical separation and 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 pursuit of holiness, but sometimes we can emphasize separation to the point of isolation. Mm. Right, instead of instead of not loving the world, we don't love worldlings. <laughs> you know, and Paul addresses that in First Corinthians five, where he says, "You're you're supposed to practice church discipline on a so-called brother who's living like that, but not the unbelievers of the world." It's not your job to judge them, right? So we need to have some connection with lost people to witness to them. Uh, but 
the flip side of that is uh, you can actually lose your ability to witness if you go, if you run from isolation over to the other pole of imitation, hmm. right? And you become like them. So, and then extend that out to the mission field because it's so hard to cross culture, so hard to, to, to do that bridge. You can have missionaries who are in the compound kind of mindset, right? They're, they're basically out of connection from the culture around them. Like we can be sometimes in our churches, we can, we can have no connection with lost people other than occasional track runs out to the, you know, or an event, something like that. But in terms of the fabric of our lives, we're isolated. Sometimes that can happen on the mission field. Well, if we build a building, we just start preaching, then people will come. And not necessarily being, well, how are we actually moving toward lost people to communicate the gospel with them? Um, so I think those kinds of things can, you know, can be pervasive problems, whether you're here or there. Uh, that's really helpful. Thank you for drawing out the, the message, the, the messenger, and the mission field, the three M's right. to, to follow biblically what, what the Bible says about how to conduct evangelism and discipleship. Thank you. Yeah, um, Dr. Doran, would you just be willing as we start to wind down just to share a little bit more about your ministry with Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary and there at, at the church you serve? Um, sure. Tell us more about what, how long you've been there. Uh, the, the, well, obviously you're a senior pastor. That tells us a lot about your role there, but tell us a little bit more about your ministry uh, in both roles. Yep. So I actually came to the Lord as an eight-year-old boy through the ministry of this church. So my, my whole family, I mean, great parents, but unbelieving parents and uh, we never went to church we basically were sort of like a you know your irreligious home although they had some religious background I just, I never remember going to parents uh, church with my parents they actually heard about the church in our Christian school and checked into it for my older sister and then we began to attend the church and over the course of several months all five of us came to Christ and wow. and were baptized together and uh, so I grew up in in this church uh, from third grade through 12th grade, went away to, to college to study for ministry, came back to our seminary, Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, got my MDiv and THM, and most of that when I was on staff at a church on the north side of the city as an assistant pastor. In 1989, the church called me back to be the, the senior pastor. I followed a pastor who had been here for 40 years, uh, uh, Dr. William R. Rice. He uh, was my pastor growing up, had a Ph.D. from Grace in Winona Lake way, way back in the, in the 40s, uh, was a you know, faithful expositor, uh, theologically sound. So uh, came to a small church, uh, and then uh, that church and another church merged. That's how we came up with the name InterCity. Mm. Baptist Church. This whole area was farmland, and it started people moving out of the city. It grew. So uh, church expanded, started a Christian school in 1966, started the seminary in 1976. Okay. And, um, so I came back first Sunday of February 1989, so it'll be almost 35 years ago. A primary preaching teaching role in the church, and then I, te I teach uh, two classes a semester in the seminary, 
pastoral theology classes uh, in the fall and spring. And then uh, God's raised up a opportunity for our church to actually have a mission agency for to serve missionaries in really it's more in specific areas where we've tried to concentrate in East Africa and some restricted access countries. And so um, Lord's giving me opportunity to do that in the, the backstory in the book was in the mid nineties. Um, so about five, seven years into my ministry here, we really started clarifying what we felt like we should be doing as a church missions wise. And then at the same time, I'd been doing some reading about the student volunteer movement, some of those things. And if you recall, <laughs> AD 2000 was sort of hanging out there over everyone's head. So there was a lot of, a lot of emphasis. So we decided to host a student missions conference and the first year we did it, AT, AT, uh, Mission 2000, there were like 500 students showed up at our church mm-hmm. um, just after the first of the year. So on their Christmas break, you know, dead cold of winter in Michigan, uh, students, uh, a boatload of students showed up and just was uh, unusual uh, conference and blessing from God. We had what we did as a church is we brought in some keynote speakers, but then we also flew our mission missionaries from all over around world back hmm. to so we could have just about every part of the world covered for these students to be able to talk with missionaries, interact, and I mean it, was, it just was an amazing conference. Out of that, one of the men who was there at that first conference, we asked to come and join the staff to. Uh, to sort of try and build on that and mobilize that. And that's when Student Global Impact uh, basically formally came into existence. And that that fellow's idea was, hey, let's write out um, sort of our philosophy of missions and and get it published and give it away at the first conference. And so that's that's basically where the book came from. And was used, so we did those conferences every other year, year till I think 2014 was the the last one we did, and we just felt like, um, you know, it was maybe time to just have a shift because staff wise and other conferences came on up. You know, people started doing other missions conferences. Um, ours was it was unique, and then then it was one among many that was was happening. Mm-hmm. And so we decided to sort of shift our attention some other ways. But God's been very kind and just, you know, a n- number of people around the globe um, who would point back to one of those conferences as being a significant point in their lives of of thinking through this issue and, and heading out to the field. Mm-hmm. So, so we're grateful for, for what God did with it. Well, thank you, Dr. Doran. It's such an encouragement even to to pastors and church leaders and teachers that here an eight-year-old can become saved and, and grow in the ministry and grow in the faith, and now you're propagating the, the word and making disciples. I know it shocked a lot of my high school teachers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's... that's that I was now their pastor. <laughs> <laughs> well, praise God, and, and thank you for your ministry. And uh, thanks again for, for coming on the Sound Words podcast today. We enjoyed having you. Thank you very much. Listeners, uh, again, if you would subscribe to our channel on YouTube, that'd be helpful to reach more people with biblical content and be notified about future episodes. 
Pastor Jesse, any other lasting comments? The last word, as always, goes to God and his word from 2 Timothy 1.13, where Paul says to Timothy, retain the standard of sound words which you've heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Thanks for listening.